Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode two of the Books, Books, Books Griffith Review series. It's wonderful to welcome back Dr. Ashley Hay, editor of Griffith Review, to talk about edition 73 called Hey Utopia. Ash, great to have you back on Books, 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 the Griffith Review series. Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm going to start by asking you, what does utopia mean to you? Look, I think that's a really interesting one because I think everybody has a slightly different sense of it. You know, there's the sort of base dictionary definition of the the imagined and perfect place. Um, I think we all live in a world now where we've got those fantasies about what a utopia might be. I think we're possibly a little bit clear-eyed about whether that perfect place not only uh, is attainable or not, but is it even really desirable? Um, we've probably run through enough failed utopian experiments now to, to sort of see a little bit more of the nuance and the complexity in thinking about utopias. But when we began putting this edition of Griffith Review together, um, we were really looking for a framework that allowed us to explore other ways the world could be uh, in terms of its past, its present and its future. Now, given that this book was coming into the world in August, I think quite a few of us have a bit of an investment in imagining other ways the world could be. But I, in saying that, this is, this is not a COVID edition. COVID gets its toes in here and there. Um, but it just felt like a nice time to be saying, how do we think about uh, other states in the world? How do we think about remaking different parts of the world? How do we use our imaginations in this world? What do we actively have to do in the world to realise those imaginings? And all these different voices and ideas from lots of different disciplines and perspectives sort of feed around those central concerns. Ash, what was the brief that you gave to contributors? Griffith Review, you know, part of our thing is that we have a different theme, a different topic every three months. And and it's always had this capacity to be able to somehow project itself forward and see what we need to be talking about in, you know, six months, nine months, 12 months time. This was famously the talent of its founding editor, Julianne Schultz, and it's um, a very interesting process to go through. This edition, this third edition for 2021, our second year in a pandemic, um, I, as the person now in charge of doing that forecasting and crystal ball gazing, I found this one very hard to think about because uh, one thing we've learned over the last 18, 20 months is how how little we can predict what is going to come next. So when we sent, when we started talking to writers and we sent the the call out out, we talked a little bit about some of the 
earlier very famous um, utopian ideas that that particularly creative writers have put into the world. And then we asked our writers to think about what our visions of utopia look like today, how we try to disentangle very practical realities from what I guess you could call daydreams or pipe dreams. We wanted to explore the dangers of utopianism, the dangers of that sort of presumption that there is a, um, a perfect other state that we can aspire to, let alone whether we can ever reach it or not. But we also wanted to look quite particularly at the ways issues like sustainability and gender equity and economic justice can feed into our visions of an ideal society, can feed into the ways we think about different ways of life, um, we also wanted to make a very big call for the role of imagination, this extraordinary capacity that we have as humans to, to think about things that have happened and play them out through different endings and different scenarios, to think about what might happen and play that out through other possibilities and scenarios. It's a really amazing capacity when you think about it, to be able to revisit our past and you know, in this way foreshadow possible futures. And so imagination ended up being a very central part of the edition as a whole. Mm, and that comes through in a number of the pieces, some of the ones we're going to be talking about today. There are 34 contributors to this mm. issue. They've written essays, memoir, reportage, fiction, poetry, and there's a couple of photo essays as well. Sadly, we can't talk about all of these, but we're going to discuss a few from each of those different categories, starting with essays. First one I want to ask you about is by Professor Julianne Schultz, and she was and is, up until now, the founder and publisher of Griffith Review. Her essay, which is entitled Facing Foundational Wrongs, takes us back to the Federation debates to argue that ever since then there's been a lingering racism in this country, which she describes as a moral deficit in Australian politics. And she takes us right back to those constitutional debates in 1901, and she talks quite a bit about the white Australia policy, how it evolved and what it was. Could you just remind us a little bit about the white Australia policy? Look, one of the things that I think is so powerful about Julianne's essay is the way she unpacks, you know, this policy, which was pretty much about um, controlling who was in Australia, who counted in Australia, how they were counted, um, and right down to really... Um, really severe restrictions on movement, restrictions on ways of being. One of the things that I found really interesting in this piece was looking at the way this wasn't um, this wasn't really accepted in the rest of the world. You know, there was a lot of kind of question about uh, Australia setting itself up as this very new nation state. In such e even a, in England in the mother country. Yes, I yes. I made that point, which was really interesting. Exactly. But setting itself up in such an exclusive way. Now, when, you know, Julianne is, is working on this wonderful book, which is coming out next year, which is sort of looking at Australia's, um, you know, history since Federation. And, and this essay, in some ways, walks towards some of the work she's been doing there. But it is just this thing of saying all the ways we have mistaken ourselves as utopian, you know, that word is used by politicians and public servants and various people all the way through from very early on the piece, the way we make these assumptions about who we are and what we are and the way it absolutely, uh, it allows us to remain absolutely blind to how this new nation state is treating the oldest inhabitants of this landscape. 
And I think, you know, there's there are um, there are some particular points in the piece. Julianne was talking about the restrictions on movement. Uh, I think it was in the 1920s. I'm pulling that out of my head at the moment. Around uh, Indian uh, people with uh, family and background in India coming in and out of Australia in the 1920s. And as she was working on this, we, of course, were in this extraordinary space where the borders had been closed in Australia to Australian citizens who were in India. And um, it, it was a very sobering thing to understand these questions of control, of exclusion, you know, in this, in the context of a 120-year conversation I was going to say that we have been having, but really it's a 120-year conversation that we haven't been having around a lot of these issues. One of the points um, that I loved in this particular essay was a very small, you know, almost offhand comment that at one point there was a move to name this newly invented capital city that Australia was going to have, not Canberra, but utopia, which I think in the context of all of the news that we've seen coming out of Canberra, particularly in the last year, two years, recent times, would have been a headline writer's dream if mm. we'd had all of this emerging from utopia. But I think just the way this phrase drops casually, you know, Julianne opens the piece with um, remembering when border force was sent up and the, the first sort of the first sort of presentation of its commissioner and its uniform and its purpose in the world. And even in that space, there's a reference to protecting our utopia. Mm. Now, that language is very interesting and the, and the subtitle of Julianne's essay is Careful What You Wish For, which I think is a really, oh, just a really poignant reminder of saying here is a particular unpacking of, you know, this part of our history through this, the use and the misuse of this one word. But what is it that we're saying about ourselves? What are we presuming about who we are and how we operate if we keep dropping this little utopian label into the space that is contemporary Australia? And she makes the point that the utopia that we've been talking about for all these years is a white utopia. And mm. she talks about how it's a utopia that excludes, obviously, First Nations people. And it excludes from those early days because of the white Australian policy, all non-European immigrants. And she says that there are echoes of this white utopia that continue to uh, recur in Australian policy and political rhetoric, in law, personal racial abuse. And she gives a couple of very pertinent examples. One of them is the what she calls the brutal rejection of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Mm. And the other example she gives is the treatment of Adam Goods. She makes the point that a lot of ordinary Australians came out to support him, but no politicians did, and the AFL itself didn't apologise or do anything to deal with that situation for some time. So she makes the point that this concept of a white utopia is really part of our foundation story. And I think what's interesting in, in exactly those examples um, that you've just mentioned there is particularly around um, Adam Goods, but also around the presentation, the, the invitation in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, is there was enormous public support for, you know, it was public support for Adam Goods. There is public support for, you know, the adoption of the Uluru Statement, you know, as part of um, a lot of acknowledgement of action that needs to be taken, you know, concrete action, um, philosophical action, all these sorts of ways of thinking. And and that that sort of unpacking of the distinction between 
how the public perceives and responds to something and what happens at a political level, um, a political level broadly, is a really, um, it's an interesting space to consider in the context of any country, but certainly in the context of an Australia that tells itself very specific stories about, um, you know, the kinds of people that Australians believe themselves to be um, and, and how they like to think of how they treat each other. Um, this is a very interesting week to be thinking about this, um, but I think what makes Julianne's essay so powerful is that, you know, in her time and her role, first of all, as founding editor and now as publisher of Griffith Review, she's stepping down from that role when she leaves Griffith University this coming September, but she is such an exquisite reader and translator of who Australians are who they believe themselves to be and the gaps that sometimes exist in between those two spaces, either at a personal level or at a political level. And that's phenomenally important space to explore. As she does make that point, as you say, that there seems to be quite a public appetite for reform mm. in a number of areas. And she talks about what's been happening globally as a result of COVID and the end of the Trump years and how that seems to herald the end of um, neoliberalism. Then she asks herself whether it is possible in Australia for these things to provoke change, in particular whether as a result of COVID there is a chance for all of us to rethink fundamentals. And she suggests, as we've said, that there's a public appetite for it, but she says that the political will is lacking. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think that's a sense that we've felt um Again, recently, you know, you and I are talking um, just the week after the IPCC report came out. Um, you know, that is a classic space of, a, you know, a place where you can see such a desire for change um, and such an enormous space of political inactivity. One of the other very strong pieces that we have in this edition is by Amanda Tattersall, who's one of the co-founders of Get Up amongst, you know, a lot of other work that she's done as a change maker. And she goes back to her involvement in um, the, the massive protests that were mobilised in 2003 around the world against the invasion of Iraq. Um, and she talks about having to struggle as a change maker with the disconnect between the millions of people who went out and marched around the world and the political response. And, you know, I think again and again, you know, in examples in Amanda's piece and examples in a number of pieces in the book, there is this space and it's a very challenging one, again, to think about. But as the scale and scope of these problems get, you know, larger and larger and larger, um, you, you sort of think, well, we, we are all, you know, we are engaging with it in our own personal lives. We are engaging whether it's climate change or whether it's, you know, protesting um, something that, you know, some large geopolitical act that we don't agree with. But that sense of disconnection between the different parts of the people who make the decisions and, and the public is, is getting more and more pronounced. We published a book at the beginning of 2020 called Matters of Trust, and a lot of that was, you know, exploring questions of trust in our big institutions, in our government, in our public service, in, you know, in in the um, police and, the, you know, in, in with nurses and all those sort of layers of the different sectors that we intersect with. And I think coming down to this question of trust, if there is a growing disconnect between, 
you know, what people feel is 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 their opinion and the, the sort of things they would like to see action on and what actually happens in the band of people who have the capacity to make those changes, to undertake that action, then that is only going to eat into whatever trust exists. And in the political sphere, um, that feels pretty urgent at the moment. Ash, let's look now at the essay by Sarah Santillis, who's a writer, an American writer, and her essay is called Creation Stories, The World-Making Power of Art. Mm. And there's a beautiful quote which I had highlighted and I saw when I reread your introduction, you had pointed to as well, and she says this, when we make art, sentence, loaf of bread, garden, painting, we exercise the muscles we need to remake the world. We remember it is possible to make something new. What does she mean by that? Uh, I find this, I mean, that sentence, um, I think, you know, if I was someone who believed in tattoos, I'd get that, you know, put onto some part of my person. I think the absolute power in this piece is bringing the awareness to everyone that they have the capacity to make new things and and if you if you play that out to its sort of you know <laughs> furthest extension that includes making the world new mm. and how she talks about doing this is through creativity now her her own background uh, is in large part as a as a theological scholar, which I think is a really interesting space to explore utopias from. And she, she trained to be an episcopal priest, didn't she? Yes, yeah, and she and she sort of comes into the conversation in this way of talking about, um, you know, coming into the question of creativity and utopias through this prism of religion, mm. but particularly, again, in this in this pandemic time you know in this in the in the space where so many people have come back into their houses have been making all those loaves of sourdough have been you know so many people are writing poetry again have been out in their gardens um there is something incredibly empowering in recognizing that that like imagination that is an innate human skill to make new things and you know, I'm very fortunate and privileged that the work that I do is in is in a space where we are making new things all the time. Um, and I think, you know, you know when you work in that space, you know the the excitement of it and the power of it and and you hope that people see the potential of it. You hope that people see the potential of just this ability we have to say, here is a new way of thinking about this thing. Here is a new idea. Here is here is a new, you know, a new patch with six tomato plants and some basil in it. Whatever it is, it's it's the the making and the nurturing and the growing. Um, and I I think there is thinking about those things as a muscle, thinking about them as giving us all the capacity to make the world new somehow is an incredibly empowering idea at the moment and speaks to that disconnection that Julianne talks about, you know, where we were waiting for these big things to happen up here. Well, let's look at the ways, even the smallest ways, that we can make change where we are. And that's something she really points to. She argues that making art is a revolutionary act. Mm. She calls it activism. She calls it one of the most vital things we can do right now. She says it's a radical act. Mm. Why does she say that? How is creating art, for example, writing a book or an essay, activism? Well, I think it is underscoring the potential for the new and underscoring the potential for change. I think it's it is um, it is working at 
decoding the world as it is and working at decoding what its future might be. I loved, I, I'm a very big admirer of Sarah Centerley's work. I found her through Draw Your Weapons, which I found thought was an extraordinary book. Um, and she also wrote a very powerful essay about empathy a while ago, which I think feeds into Stranger Care, her new book. She had this great idea in um, in this essay about at the limitations of empathy, that empathy requires us to find a sort of common ground with people and then we then we can sort of feel for them or feel what they're feeling. And she was saying, but the point is we've got to find the connection where there's nothing in common. That's where radical empathy comes in. So when we started to think about utopias, I thought she might be someone who was quite interested in exploring this space. And we had this lovely moment when I got in touch with her where she she said that these kinds of ideas, she's very concerned about the idea of utopia. She's sort of concerned about, you know, how utopias get hijacked and how they get set up to, you know, really delineate and define what people are able to do. And she wanted to look at the sort of the, the, the enormous potential of creativity beyond that. And essentially our invitation was giving her the opportunity to write this piece she'd been thinking about for years and years and years and to bring these ideas about the power of art, about the power of creativity, the power of connection, the power of possibility as well onto the page. So I'm, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity, well, for being able to give her the opportunity to make the piece in the first place and then the opportunity of sharing it with readers on the other side of that. She makes another really lovely point, and that is how in practising art, you as the artist or the creator are actually learning to practise a more focused attention. She says mm -hmm. this, when I spend an hour writing instead of an hour watching the news or on social media, the quality of my ideas changes. What I understand as possible expands. My sense of agency grows. So she argues Contrary to what a lot of people say or suggest that by focusing on your art, you're being selfish, she says, no, focusing on art, focusing on creation is actually an incredibly generous act because it enables you to imagine a better world and to think about how you might help to create that. Mm. What do you think about that idea, Ash? I It really resonates with me. There's a, there's a mindfulness that I'm not sorry, that's a, can be quite a loaded term, but there's a mindfulness that comes with creative work and with the immense privilege of having the time and space to undertake that, which I think changes your perceptions of and relationships with so many other parts of the world. I I know, I mean, what the, one of the ways I found Sarah Centerley's work was through the Australian novelist Charlotte Wood um, and I know uh, that Charlotte you know has drawn on Sarah's work in some of her own writing and a long time ago I did a, a writing uh, retreat with Charlotte and she had this wonderful phrase about tilting the mind and it was basically you spent a week before you had this week where you were only going to be doing your work you spent a week sort of bringing yourself towards that space you know just really paying attention and giving it the giving it the giving it the oh what's the word I'm looking for you know honoring it in a sense by giving it the space and the attention and, and giving it the value I guess of saying this matters and I was fascinated in that process of how it changed 
your perception of all those other facets of the world. So, you know, I'm with Sarah Centrelings. If I could not watch the news, I'd, I'm in a much happier state of mind. There's all sorts of reasons for that. But but I think the way you then do look at the world, whether it is your, you know, the curated social media world of your friends or whoever you're connecting with in that space or the world that's coming into you through the 7 o'clock news, I think that attention and that 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 space that you've brought into your own work also changes how you engage with all those other things. And it's um, as someone who is in a position to sort of experience that every so often it sounds like a vaguely alchemical thing, but it's very powerful. And the 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 lovely clarion call in in Sarah's piece, as you said, you know, the loaf of bread, the the planting the plant, the the making a painting, the making a sentence. It's it's not as if you have to be Charlotte Wood to to make the sentence. The point is, we all can do this. Whatever it is, building a wall or knitting a jumper or you know any of these things, it is remembering this is like our imagination. This is a capacity that we have and a muscle that we can exercise like any other muscle. Let's talk now about Professor Danielle Selamaya. She's a professor at Sydney University and the deputy director of the Sydney Environment Institute. And she's contributed an essay called Grounded Imaginaries. I just want to set the background a little bit to this mm. one so that it's clear to listeners what she's talking about. So she starts by saying the current systems that we are living in are creating disastrous outcomes for all life, human life and also non-human life. So the way that we're living is creating catastrophic climate change. We therefore need transformation and she wants to explore how we bring that about. She says that at the moment we have three responses to the prospect of a climate exchange of a climate change future. She calls them three imaginaries. The first is business as usual, which basically amounts to total denial. The second is rescue and escape, that either uh, technology will save us from the um, effects of catastrophic climate change or God will. And the third is apocalypse and doom, that it's all hopeless, we're all doomed, we have no power to do anything or to change this, and it's all just doom and gloom. Now, she argues that each of those three approaches is flawed. Why are they flawed? What's wrong with those approaches? Well, I think they deny the real world, in a sense, um, I think what is wonderful about this idea of grounded imaginaries is that it insists on bringing the problem back into the space where we are. So, you know, there's a there's a level of escapism in all three of those, in the utter denial, um, in the something amazing will come in and save us, knight in shining armour, you know, um, and in the, you know, um, it's all the end of the world, although I have to say, I'm, you know, that's a hard, a hard thing not to think at the moment. Um, but I, I think what's wonderful about this idea of grounded imaginaries is it, it wants to talk about practical measures about bringing people into the space where they are with the resources that they have in the particular context that they have and saying, what can you do here? How can you work here to change how you are adapting, how you are living with climate change and there's a um i think that line that i um referred to in our original call out of of untangling the sort of practical realities from the pipe dreams is most clearly summed up in this piece from danielle um i i 
found Danielle. I, I accidentally found her. I met her um, at the Adelaide Writers Festival, you know, in one of those amazing moments this year where we could actually be in the same place at the same time as each other. And Danielle, a lot of people might remember uh, during the horrific summer of 2019-2020, she'd written a piece for ABC online. She had a pig called Jimmy and Jimmy had survived the horrific fires in her part of the south coast of New South Wales. Her other pig hadn't and she wrote this piece about watching Jimmy come back into the landscape and understand, you know, and, and respond to what was happening there. And out of that, there was an enormous response all over the world to this piece. And out of that, she wrote a beautiful book called Summertime, which came out in 2020, I think. But I, I met her in the in the at the Adelaide Writers Week, and we started talking about this idea of grounded imaginaries, this idea that we have different imaginaries, different sort of default spaces that we go to that guide how we let ourselves think about things, how we let ourselves think about what might be possible. And I loved the word grounded in what she was doing of just saying, you know, where are you and what's possible? She's part of a big project that's working on this um, with some particular places in India. And I think that's a really fascinating piece of, you know, academic research in and of itself. And it speaks also, there's another amazing piece in this edition by Bryony Doyle, um, who her beautiful novel Echolalia came out earlier this year. And she also works, you know, a lot in the sort of climate space. But Bryony makes this great point that we tend to treat, um, we, we, we come to sort of uh, apocalypse stories with the idea that they're that they're the sort of the big full stop, the big interruption in something, and then there's this extraordinary renewal on the other side of it. And Bryony says, no, you know, you have the big moment and then you just have the next moment and the next moment and the next moment. It's, you know, you're just always in the next now. And I think that idea resonates really with a lot of what Danny is unpacking in her piece of just saying, look, we've got all these structures by which we we can think about what we might do, but a lot of them are constraining us, a lot of them are limiting us. And really, you know, where we are, if we could look clearly at where we are and the resources we all had to hand, we would be in a different imaginative space and a sort of space of different potential for adaptation and change through that. And as you say, that choice of the word grounded, what she's, it seems to me she's saying there is it has to be grounded in reality, that these, yes. are, not, these are not fanciful possibilities. People need to know that there are possibilities. There are ways of responding to a future that's dramatically, catastrophically changed by climate change. There are realistic, uh, there are realistic possibilities. And the work that you mentioned, the joint project uh, being done by her institute and, and in India, is looking at recent work, um, looking at how different communities are actually responding in practice mm. to the practical challenges caused by climate change. She gives a couple of examples of that, two examples happening in Australia. One of them is about communities running local energy projects mm. and the other is about farmers rejecting chemical fertilisers and in using um, regenerative measures instead. And she argues that because the communities themselves are driving change, this sort of transformation is democratic and desirable. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Well, I think this also comes back to um, that disconnect that we were talking about in the context of Julianne Schultz's piece between, you know, the sort of desire for action at the ground level and the, the you know, the political um, the slowness of the political process, shall we say, at the other level. And I think there is, you know, there is 
incredible sense of agency and power in saying, you know, this community is doing this thing. You know, this is, you know, here is the microgrid. Here is the, the you know, collective of farmers that are changing, you know, what they plant, how they plant, when they plant, what goes where, all of these things. And there's been a massive movement. We published a piece a couple of years ago by Charlie Massey about this. There's been a huge response to his sort of focus on regenerative farming. And, and, and the agricultural space is really interesting in Australia in terms of what it's what it's doing and how it's responding. I think if there's any sort of limitation, um, it is that, you know, yes, there is all this amazing activity and it is incredibly important to understand how you can engage with it or how you can be part of it or how you can, you know, in your own way make a difference, change something, you know, get something off the ground. It doesn't preclude the need for the big you know, policy-wide, overarching, you know, governments of the world coming together. It doesn't take away the need for those decisions as well. I think it's super, it's it's so important to have that sense of personal agency, but it's not to let the people with political agency off the hook um, for not sort of getting a move on in some spaces. Let's move now to look at memoir, Ash, mm. and the one that I thought we'd talk about it's by Leah McInerney, who is a writer, and she's written a very pertinent piece, which is entitled Life on JobKeeper. So we find out she's a freelance trainer and a workshop facilitator. She's also in the process of writing a book, but she earns her living from those, those first two types of work, training people and facilitating workshops. So as with so many people in the arts and the creative sector, all of her paid work dried up during the COVID lockdown, and she was in Melbourne last year. And she received JobKeeper, the government allowance, what she calls Australia's mini experiment in having a universal basic income or a UBI. What impact did it have on her? What impact on her life, on her work and on her mental health did it have for her to receive that um, regular allowance? I love the opening of Lee's piece because she describes this very small moment when she's taking her designated amount of exercise time in that brutal lockdown that Melbourne went through last year and she's in a park and she realises that she feels happy and it's because she is giving, she is able to give herself to this creative work that she wants to do. This speaks back to Sarah Centerley's piece that we were just talking to. It is, you know, Leah has been working on, um, on a, a, I guess, a sort of memoir project um, with a First Nations elder who's over in South Australia. And when all of her paid work falls away and this money starts turning up, she has space to focus on this project. She has the space to do the work that matters. And it is this lovely little embodied, you know, Lee McInerney is, is in a sense, you know, the, the smallest part of the small experiment that is what would a universal basic income mean to the creative workers of Australia? Now, given the response through COVID in terms of getting funding to the creative sector. There have been some lovely initiatives. There have been lovely initiatives for, you know, some individuals and for the, you know, some organisations and, you know, some really great projects that are underway. 
But the complications for people working in the cultural sector, which is a precarious sector at the best of times, in terms of accessing JobKeeper, the number of people who couldn't access JobKeeper, who couldn't access any kind of support, um, I think, you know, there's, there's not a lot of lovely epiphanies that have come out of the COVID time, but Lee's own lived experience with her work with this, this little period of support that she could have and, and how that transformed the project itself, but her relationship with her work, her sort of her mental health, everything. I, I, I was just delighted to, I was delighted that she brought this onto the page because um, we talk a lot about the precarity of this profession, of this industry, this sector. Ash, there are a couple of other pieces in this edition where people talk about the impact of COVID on people in the arts and creative industries. What are those pieces? Well, it's there's a really fabulous pair of pieces in this book, one by Justin O'Connor uh, who works out of... University of South Australia, one by Julian Merrick, who's at Griffith University. Justin looks at the overall cultural landscape of Australia, how how it has come to be in the state it's in, um, and more urgently, what it needs, you know, what it needs to be aware of as it desperately tries to navigate into, you know, some future state. So Lee is the sort of lived experience of JobKeeper coming in and, and the way that that injection, that fortnightly injection of a payment changes her own sort of cultural space. Justin looks at the the sort of huge topography of the cultural sector in terms of how funding has changed over the decades, in terms of, you know, presumptions that the sector has made, presumptions that, you know, governments of different stripes have made, how all of this has led us to the particular place that we found ourselves in, in the particular precarity that the pandemic increased and introduced. Um, and Julian's piece then talks about Julian works also as a theatre director and he talks from very personal space of, of having the first show to go on tour after the lockdown in Melbourne, having watched, you know, that show sort of be mothballed and postponed and upheaved in all sorts of ways across that year, getting it back into the theatre, watching the audience come in, just feeling the weight of what he knew the sector had been experiencing and understanding how that felt and what it meant through the context of the particular play that he was bringing to an audience then. It's, um, it's been an interesting time in the cultural sector, you'd have to say that, but I think there's a, there's a lovely conversation between these three pieces. Julian's is very philosophical, Lee's is very personal and, you know, on the ground lived experience and Justin's insists that we look at how we got to this point and really what we need to think about as we try very urgently to get ourselves out of it. And I'd just like to come back to one of the points that Lee makes, which I think is a very important one, that by her receiving these regular payments, she was basically released from doing any other sort of work other than the work that she, as it happens, was absolutely passionate about, which was mm-hmm. recording the story of this First Nations man. And she thinks about that a bit and she realises that that is that that particular project it's quite possible that she is the best placed person to do that, but nobody else could do that quite as well as she can. Mm-hmm. She looks at the other jobs that she does as a workshop facilitator, as a trainer, and she she realises that 
there's a lot of other people that could do that work, um, not just her. So I thought that was a really nice takeout as well, that by giving her that equivalent, the universal basic income, to an artist in that way, you were really enabling them to to be their best person and to do their best work. That comes back too to what we were talking about uh, with with Sarah Centelli's piece earlier of honouring the work, you know, of of, mm. of being able to actually hold the space for it and to say, you know, this matters, this matters for this man personally to have his story told, but it matters because this story, you know, impacts, will impact, will reach these readers. It's, it's actually... Um, it's being it's being enabled to take the value of it seriously rather than tucking it in around the edges of the money making work which is the thing mm. that has always had to have more value placed on it simply because you have to pay your rent and buy your food and, and support whoever you're supporting as you say, that comes back to exactly what Sarah said about the space to focus your attention on your art. Before mm. before COVID, she had this one central project that she was passionate about, but she had to fit that in around her working day, maybe do a couple of hours at night, maybe a couple of hours in the morning. But being released from the need to make an income by doing this less rewarding work, she was then able to focus all of her intentions on the work she was really passionate about and make it the really best that it could be. And if you think about how this project will feed into, you know, Australia's national narrative, um, I'd argue, I'm sure Lee's a fantastic trainer and I'm sure all those workshops were wonderful, but I would argue this is incredibly important work in the context of that broader national narrative. And it's, yeah, as I say, we can't publish too many happy stories about COVID and I'm really delighted that we were able to bring this one into this edition of Griffith Review. And she draws it all together at the end by talking about the benefits that she sees in a universal basic income. So mm. she gives us something to think about, prevents poverty, it nurtures creativity, and it values people for what they contribute. So that's a really important takeout, I think, in terms of people in the creative industries, in the arts. And in terms of any industry, I think, you know, if you if you say something, you know, prevents poverty, nurtures creativity, you know, increases people's sense of value, whoever they are, whatever they can contribute, all of those have to feed to mental health, um, which, you know, takes us a whole addition back to states of mind. But, um, yeah, I, I, there was something in the New Yorker just this week in its daily newsletter about a lot of people specifically in the knowledge creation industries and the knowledge industries there's been a, a lot of resignations and a lot of, you know, changing life plans and changing work plans. And it is because, you know, notions of value are changing. And that's interesting if you start hemorrhaging your knowledge workers out of science or out of the arts or out of wherever. But it's also interesting if it is part of a bigger rethinking or remaking of how we work, why we work, the work we want to do, the work we understand is important and and what that work can then do when it starts to combine you know out in the world and and finds its own audiences i see a future edition of griffith review on just that topic. <laughs> i think that would be fascinating okay let's have a look at um reportage and 
I loved this bit. We won't talk about it for too long, but I loved this piece by Irene Castelli. So she's a researcher who researches the early stages of life from conception. I love that. Mm. To two. And she's written a piece called Worlds of Play, which is all about the child-friendly city movement involving children in urban design. And she says it really, the movement took off in the 1990s. Since then, there's been a, a, uni, a, a UN document or report attached to it. She talks about a specific project in Colorado called the Growing Up Boulder Project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's this glorious idea that if you actually consult children about the spaces that they would like to be in and play in and live in, not only will you make something that the children enjoy more, but you will actually make landscapes that are better for everyone. Um, and I love this idea. I just think it is so obvious once you start thinking about it and so powerful. Um, the, there's quite a bit in this piece about the, the growing up boulder project and, and how it sort of moved out from its beginnings to, you know, actually not just thinking about parks or playgrounds, but actually thinking about lots of different parts of the city landscape, you know, where you put a seat for someone to sit yeah. on and what those things, you know, how those things, what they look like, how they operate. But there's a there's a, a, a city that she mentions, it's a European city, which I am not now going to pull from my head, but I know you oh, will. Albania. Yeah, where this, you know, this this sort of child-friendly city focus has actually helped to undo some of the political divisions and tensions in a city, which I just think is magic. And Mm -hmm. the idea of, you know, of um, of, uh, consulting the people who are actually involved, this speaks, this is a very tangential link, but, um, you know, come with me here. I think this to me talks to, there's a, there's a, powerful, powerful piece in this book by Jane Gleason White called Erasure, which is all about reframing economics by actually counting what women do in the same way that you count what men do. It's, you know, people have been talking about this for some time now, and I think Jane is up to her back teeth with it. And there's a lot of ferocity in this piece. But this idea of, of, of um, we, we change, we change what's possible to do in a landscape when we change who we're talking to about what's happening happening there and how we're talking what we're asking them. This also, it intersects with a fantastic piece by Helen Such that reframes poverty through the um, through ideas of, you know, the, the individual deprivation measure and actually looking not at the dollar a day metric or the, you know, per capita thing, but actually unpacking the experience of poverty. Is it different for women than men? Well, strangely enough, it is. examples such as access to sanitation, access to clean exactly. water, access exactly. to clothing, access to the internet. That, that was also a fascinating piece, looking if you measure extreme poverty in a different way, not just in monetary terms, then perhaps that will give you a better way to think about how you might be able to eradicate it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, with Irene's piece of this thing of saying, hey, what about talking to the children? What about actually asking them what they'd like and why they'd like it and how they'd like it to work? It, it connects to Jane's piece. It connects to Helen Such's piece. It connects to Hugh Possingham's piece about citizen science. But Irene's is just this wonderful demonstration of what a different perspective can open up. And, again, I think the, the really important point that I took away from it was not just to make an afternoon in a playground more fun for a kid, but to change the experience of being in the city 
for elderly people, for adults, you know, as I say, for at sort of at a political level, you know, this this sense of of understanding it as a human right. You know, part of the work this UN document does is saying, you know, these people have a right to be heard. Now, you know, to come back to the the sort of climate space again, we we have seen the increasing power of children claiming their voices in that space to again think, well, what if you just bring it down to your neighbourhood, you know, your your walk to school, your city, wherever you are, and and you know, get the perspective from three foot high instead of, you know, five foot six or whatever it is. Um, I think there's something really, really lovely and empowering in this idea, again, you know, across all kinds of landscapes. And as you say, Shiva, I, I love that central point as well, that by making a city better for children, you're actually making it better for everyone. And she gives examples. There's less, you know, less traffic, mm. better access to nature, separate paths for walkers and cyclists. I mean, who would have thought? Mm. All grain spaces. All of these are fantastic ideas. I, I really love that piece as well. Let's move now. There are two picture essays in this edition. Mm. Um, we'll only talk about one of them, but one that they're both fascinating, but this one by Dr Fiona Foley I found particularly uh, interesting. So she's an Indigenous artist and a lecturer, and she uh, has created something called the Magna Carta Tree, which she calls, uh, it's a photographic project, she calls it a utopian thought experiment. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about that photographic project? I love the, I love Fiona Foley's work. She's a, an award-winning bachelor artist and, um, and she's at Griffith University. Uh, bachelor is uh, the First Nations the First Nation uh, around the Fraser Coast, around Fraser Island. So that's specifically what she's talking about. Yeah, so Butchelor so is Fraser Island, Fraser Island and, and that sort of, and that Fraser Coast area. Um, and this piece was inspired, uh, there are extraordinary mangroves all around Queensland. Well, they should be all around, or different ones all around Australia, but there is one mangrove in particular uh, on a piece of property on Butchelor Country, which is a, currently a cattle farm, and uh, it's it's a particularly striking tree. And the 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 family that um, that um, owns this land manages this land at the moment uh, had it dated, and it was found to be seven hundred years old. So that the 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 man who actually owns the farm called it the Magna Carta tree because it comes, you know, it would have been a seedling in that time. And Fiona does this wonderful thing of sort of picking up this image and and taking the, the invitation of that name, that idea, to imagine a different past to put like these very sumptuously imagined historical alternatives into a bachelor landscape, into, you know, a historical context. And in that way to kind of play around with the idea of reframing history, reframing the past and what that allows you to do in terms of reframing the future and the present. Um, and she's very, she's she picks up on work by Rosie Bredotti, who I think we might have talked about last time, I can't actually remember now, um, but just this, this lovely image of using creative work to time travel and in time travelling, to see other possibilities as she says it's it's you know to to imagine 
to imagine country as a bachelor person now, it has to be, you know, it has to be a thought experiment because there's not a lot of evidence of bachelor culture on the country. There's not a lot of evidence of, you know, their story, their recent past, let alone, you know, deep time connection. The mangroves are part of that connection. Um, and, and I loved this idea of, of, of the thought experiment of being invited to time travel and of the absolutely rich narrative that she brings into being through this series of very staged, very lush photographs. And she travels across different times as well as different locations. So she goes back, as she says, to the um, 1300s, to the mangrove swamps. She also goes to more recent history, the late 1800s, where she writes about one of these particular towns in this area just opposite uh, um, where Fraser Island is, Maryborough, was an opium den. And she writes about how that the whites paid the First Nations people for their labour in opium. She talks about that. And she also talks about the fact that the white people started to object to there being uh, First Nations people there, started suggesting that the white men were getting diseases from the Indigenous girls. And as a result, uh, in 1897, a group of Bachelor people were actually banished from the mainland to Fraser Island to something called the Bogimba Creek Mission, which she says was a complete hellhole. So these photographs look to me as if they're drawing on that as well. Absolutely. And Fiona's done a lot of work in this space. So um, her book, Biting the Clouds, which grew out of her PhD work, was published last year and it's actually listed, it's on the shortlist for this year's um, work of state significance in the Queensland Literary Awards. And so the some of the some of the timelines that she is exploring are in these um, opium dens and are sort of flicking the flicking the questions of responsibility. You know, who's who's doing what to whom here? Um, who is responsible? Who is in power? Who is in control? Um, and as I say, these are absolutely um, oh, just visually stunning pieces of artwork that allow you to sink into this this little sort of snapshot of possibility you know is this what this place looked like is this the person who's in control of this situation is you know what is the relationship that I'm looking at here what is going on underneath this narrative what are the opportunities for different tellings of this story you know how can I reframe it just in that kind of creative space and I think you know not only is there this this powerful series of I think we have seven of the photos from the series they're on show at the moment up in Brisbane we've got seven of them in this edition but she's also written this essay Mm. explaining how she came into the work what she wanted the work to do what the sort of what the thinking into the work was which I think is really fascinating and also how the work you know speaks to this ongoing relationship she has with mangroves this ongoing ongoing relationship she has with this particular country in this particular space and she says that one of the things that she wants to do is, what she clearly wants to do is to remind people of the history of this area. Mm. Um, she she makes the point that this city, Maryborough, she says, has whitewashed its racist past. It's famous now as the birthplace of the author of Mary Poppins. And she says everywhere around the town there's artefacts and statues and things about Mary Poppins, but there's no Bachala cultural presence there at all. And she's she's trying to redress that as well, isn't she, to remind people of 
the racist past of that particular area and also to remind them of the very important Bajala culture that's a part of the land. Absolutely. Um, yes, I think this is, um, you know, this is part of, this is part of the reckoning that um, that is, well, that is hopefully going on more and more. I think, you know, um, people will know Henry Reynolds' book, Truth Telling, that came out late last year. And he talks in that, um, I'm very excited that um, we're going to be working with him on a piece around this next year, just the different work that Queensland in particular has to do in this space of, of acknowledging um, the, the recent past, of acknowledging the way violence and disruption swept across this landscape, um, the time frame in which it did that, uh, which is different to a lot of other parts of Australia, what that means in terms of the proximity of, of some of the events and, and the work that needs to be done in, in sort of telling, telling that history. Um, and I think Fiona's, Fiona's sort of comments about Maryborough in particular and this focus it has on one figure and one, you know, one very celebrated person, but, but without this other very long connection, you know, the fact that the mangrove tree that is 700 years old still stands, 700 years is, of course, nothing in the context of um, First Nations inhabitation of the continent itself, but it is another one of those sort of temporal reminders of, you know, there's a story here that goes longer and the tree is one part of that and the land is one part of that and these, these people are one part of that. And, you know, it's it's the thing of, I think, saying, well, all of this has to be acknowledged and celebrated and recognised, um, not just the, the sort of the one bits, bit or piece of, of a very recent and very particular narrative. As to finish, I'd like to ask you, what do you see as some of the common themes that emerge from this collection as a whole? I think the power of imagination is um, is incredibly strong. <laughs> um, I think there is a lot of uh, a lot of interesting work done by a lot of the pieces um, in looking at uh, practical responses and and sort of um, insisting on on change, insisting on change in all sorts of different spaces. I mentioned Jane Gleason White's piece earlier and, and her sort of insistence on reframing economics. There's another fantastic conversation in the book which explores uh, a great area uh, around radical governance and utopian legalities. And you just think, wow, getting governance and law and kind of looking at that through these different prisms, that is that is fantastic. Um, I think, again, and this is something that we find in a lot of um, the different uh, editions that we work on, there is um, exactly the point that we started talking about with, with Julianne Schultz's piece in terms of the urgent work that needs to be done around Australia's reckoning with its, um, you know, Indigenous settler relations, with its history, uh, with 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 whatever post-colonial Australia is going to look like, um, I think that you can see that coming through in a number of the pieces in Pat Hoffey's piece, in Anna Yateman's piece, and as a political scientist who, you know, writes quite personally about transcending her discipline and understanding the big question at play here comes back to this this um, this this reckoning this 
accommodation that needs to be made. Um, Julian Merrick's piece as well that we mentioned earlier, you know, walks into that space too. And I think I, one of the things that was really interesting is understanding the, the common through line is the recognition that no matter what discipline you're writing from, this is the space that you that you reach in Australia. This is the, the, the thing that has to be dealt with, again, you know, politically, philosophically, in terms of actual practical change and structural change in action. Um, so many people from so many different areas through so many genres right into this space. And that sort of says a lot, I think, um, about, you know, knowing the work that we need to do. Ash, trying to choose the pieces to talk about in this one hour that we have is the most difficult part of this gig. Um, it's sometimes, I've heard people say sometimes having to choose something like that's like having to choose their favourite child and I've only got one child so that would be easy for me but I still get the point. I want to mention just a couple of the other wonderful pieces here. Um, academic Natasha Chika writes about contemporary Tasmania and whether in fact her native statement is the utopia that it's often thought to be. Helen Such, as you pointed out, um, we did refer to her. She writes beautifully on different ways to measure extreme poverty as a way of trying to work out how we can eradicate it. Mm. Writer, Australian writer Ellen Van Nieven mm. writes on what a trans sports utopia might look like. They write about their own experience uh, as a trans person playing different sports and then they imagine, speaking to other trans people, what a trans sports utopia might look like. Queensland Chief Scientist Professor Hugh Possingham looks at citizen science as a way to remove what he calls informational inequity. In other words, the more of us that get involved in science, then the more knowledge we'll all have. There's beautiful poetry as well. There's more fiction that we haven't talked about. It's just a cornucopia. So I just have enjoyed speaking with you about this edition so much, and I really encourage listeners to go and grab a copy and start reading. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.